Good evening. My name is Lisa Mazza and this is Ari Long. He's my nephew and we're going to play a few songs to open the event tonight. So welcome everyone. Thanks for coming out on this beautiful evening. Um, yeah, and it's a, obviously the panellists are all going to come up and Kathy's going to uh, tell you more about it after we've sung a few songs. So we'll just kind of do some welcome songs. <laughs> Oh, shall I talk about this? Sorry. I should say something about this song. This song's about, um, it was written by my sister and I, Rachel Mazza and um, me, and we, we wrote it about, basically about the system and how we all fit into it. And isn't it, isn't it great that we can all be part of the system and, you know, the system that is what it is. So we'll play. Attract. Everyone has their role to play in this one way, one world act. Like the rich need the poor, like a prison needs a door, like the doctor needs a sick, like the government needs its war. Isn't it nice? Isn't it nice? Isn't it nice to know the system needs you? consumption needs its little consumers to ensure they keep consuming keep them wanting more got to get the perfect figure gotta get the perfect house gotta get the latest model got to get the perfect spouse isn't it nice isn't it nice isn't it nice to know the system needs you on the shows tell us how we should be and we help our economy we all play the game but who's the one to take the blame they advertise we buy we demand what they supply isn't it nice isn't it nice isn't it nice to know the system needs you This next song that we're going to do, it was written, me and my sister wrote a show which was pretty much about our life um, as Indigenous women and growing up in the city and, you know, we kind of went on a journey. We finally went 
at a particular age, actually, Ari was one and a half when we went up um, to Murray Island, which is where my father's father is from. So up in the Torres Strait, for those who don't know, it's the most far northeastern island, Mare. And, um, you know, just to kind of, well, obviously con to connect up with, with our mob who we, who we, you know, we have connections on the mainland, but to go to Murray Island and really kind of spend some time there and... Um, Basically, sorry, so that's about the show, getting off the track a bit. Um, this one was basically written um, from this show, which is about, I suppose it's about all the women who are in our, who are in our lives and a lot of my inspirations, all these kind of women who've had a really hard life. And I suppose my mum was one of those people who was kind of waiting around while my father was out, um, being a, the great guy he was, but maybe not being home so much. Um, so this is kind of... This is kind of a song for our mother who, who was in the play actually played by a little puppet called the Little Dutch Girl, which was a little marionette. So my mum's Dutch, so we incorporated all the parts of our life. All right. Always waiting, always late, heart so heavy, is this my fate, never knowing if you'll show. Should I stay or should I go? Here's a flower in my hair, dressed in blue. That's what I wear Just like Billy I'm all alone Ain't no holiday Till you come home You're not there, and so I wait here, hanging on a prayer that you, you remember that I.
my hair Dressed in blue That's what I wear Just like Billy I'm all alone In no holiday tale not there and so I'm still waiting hanging on a prayer that you'll you remember that I Always waiting for you. This is uh, more fun. And this is um, some advice for all you guys. Um, if you're looking for a... Oh, actually, it's for the girls. If you're looking for a guy, it's great advice. I put it together and I'm sure you'll all get something from it. Because actually, after so many years, I actually have got a boyfriend who's stayed with me. So that's good. See the, the advice? <laughs> no. um, yeah, it's called Checklist and it's about having a list and, you know, making sure that they are the right guys for you. So here it is. I met him at my local cafe Well soon we got to talk Well it didn't take long to realise That he was a jerk I got my checklist on you baby I'm counting down the line If you don't make it down the page honey I ain't got the time I'm not your baby to be fooling with I'm not taking any ride I've done lots of thinking worked out what I want Wanna know honey if you're good enough for me well, I sat through all the lectures in and out of school, and now I got my fares already, babe, and I'm trying it out on you. Do you cook? So, are you good to your mother? When times are tough, do you run to another? Are you smart, clean, better than better? Etc. 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 I'm not your baby to be fooling with. I'm not taking any ride. Done lots of thinking without what I want. Wanna know, honey, if you're good enough for me? Oh, well, I'm checking the list.
list of what I want and what I don't want in a relationship. Number one in this equation is equality, seeing eye to eye and understanding why we don't. Number two is respect from me to you, from you to me. It's got to be this. It's not going to be respect because I don't settle for second best. I don't settle for second best. It don't take much to pass my test. I don't settle for second best. It don't take much to pass my test. Well, I'm taking my time early. You know it's worth the wait. Cause you and me deserve the best and the best is not too late. I'm not your baby to be fooling with. I'm not taking any ride. Done lots of thinking without what I want. Wanna know, honey, if you're good enough for me, 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 me. I got my checklist on you, baby. I'm counting down the line. You don't make it down the page, honey. I ain't got the time. I got my checklist on you, baby. I'm counting down the line. You don't make it down the page, honey. I ain't got the time. I got my checklist. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll just do one more. And that is... Oh, yeah. Cool. Sorry, there's a new verse that I wrote. It only had two verses and it needed another one. So <clears throat> so this one, um, this one's called Black and Proud. And basically when me and my sister were little, we got um, dragged to every rally you can think of. When I was four, I was at the tent embassy with my mum and dad and my sister. Um, and basically, yeah, we've been to a lot of those things. And so there, there's a very familiar chorus that please feel free to sing along if you know it. Um, and yeah, it's just basically about, about um, also it's about all the people who've paved the way for us. And there was a lot of people in my life who've paved the way, um, my father being one, but a lot of people, people who are in Melbourne actually, Gary Foley for one and Uncle Jack Charles and, and those kind of guys were people that I knew when I was very little. So, you know, I'm very proud of them. So here we go. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the waterside, we shall not be moved. Two hundred years of walk-offs, two hundred years of strikes, protest and marching for our basic human rights, like David from the Bible with a slingshot in his hand. You march to the capital from all across his land, singing, we shall not, we shall not be moved, we shall not, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's standing by the waterside. We shall not be moved. You shall not Whoops. 
You shine the light to show the way. You give me strength to fight another day. You make me feel so black and proud. Just makes me want to sing out loud. Sing and we shall not, we shall not be moved. Does anyone know it? We shall not, we shall not be moved just like a tree. That's standing by the waterside. We shall not be moved. Now it's our turn to carry on and shine the light for those to come to nurture fruits of flowers sweet. United in our roots so deep, sing and we shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved, just like a tree that's standing by the waterside. We shall not be moved. Black and white together, we shall not be moved. Black and white together, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's standing by the waterside. We shall not be moved. We shall not be moved. We shall not be moved. <laughs> Thanks all for listening. Now. Thank you. I knew it was going to be a tough ask going on after Lisa and, uh, and Ari, but um, please, um, before I start the, the discussion, let's please thank um, Ari Long and Lisa uh, Mazza for um, a great introduction to tonight's talks. Um, as Lisa knows, I'm one of her biggest fans and I did travel to Sydney to see her in The Rabbits, um, which I'm not sure if you saw The Rabbits, um, amazing opera Australia production with Kate Miller-Heike and on um, John Marsden and um, Sean Tan's book. Um, but, yeah, you can tell I'm more your fan, no. Uh, um, but I was very grateful that, that um, when I went to Sydney and I said, oh, how about you could play at the start of this event that we're, we're kick-starting our conversation for the, our Clean Air and Urban Landscapes hub um, here at the M Pavilion and I'd, be, I'd really appreciate it if you could come and play. So thank you. And before we give them one more round of applause, that was their debut performance as a pair. Obviously, they've been playing, Lisa's been playing since, you know, for a long time since she was two with her late father, Bob Mazur, and obviously her sister, Rachel Mazur, as well. And they've performed countless times together. But Ari Long, um, Rachel's son, um, obviously has been performing as well. And he's from the Rudolf Steiner School. And I understand he plays many, many instruments. Um, and this is the first time that they've played together. So look out for them. You've seen them first. <laughs> I can imagine they're going to start writing their own songs. And um, no, so thank you very much. And um, Lisa's not being rude to our panellists who I'm about to introduce. She does have another meeting um, that she needs to get on the train for. So I appreciate you. So if you need to do anything technical like, you know, unplug guitars, which it looks like you've already done, um, thank you very much. 
So who am I? No. So I'm um, I'm Kathy Oak. I'm the hat that I'm wearing tonight. I know some of you from various other things around the city, but tonight I'm the uh, the knowledge broker from the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, and it's one of six hubs under the National Environmental Science Program um, through the Department of Environment um, from the Australian government, um, and. Tonight's um, session, which you'll hear about, is, is part of one of our very important strategies for our work. Um, but before I begin, I obviously would like to acknowledge and I thank the M Pavilion, um, obviously, for, for co-producing um, this event with us, but also for the work that they've done in understanding the, the traditional custodians of the land that we meet tonight. Um, and I understand um, that from their description that they're acknowledging and quite rightly they're acknowledging the Yalukut Willem people who are the river camp people of the Bunurong people um, who are members of the, the Kulin Nation um, and so I obviously and, and, and on your behalf I pay my respects to elders both past and pres present and thank you for, um, for allowing us to have tonight's evening on the land. Um, as I said, I'm from the, the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub. I would like to acknowledge that there are a few members from our research group here, including our Deputy Hub Leader, Dr. Kirsten Paris over here and from the University of Melbourne. And we also have members from RMIT because it's a consortium of four universities, um, Melbourne Uni, RMIT, the University of Western Australia and the University of Wollongong. And um, our research is all about environmental quality in cities. It's a very big topic. Um, we all know that we want our cities to be um, livable, um, not only now, but into the future. And, and so we've got our work cut out for us. <laughs> um, but we um, are obviously, we are looking at um, themes around air quality and urban greening and biodiversity and sharing the habitat, not only with, with people, but with the, the natural environment that was here before us. And as you can imagine, we've got lots of strategies and lots of plans and, um, and lots of research mapped out for the next five years. Um, but one of the really important strategies that are un that's underpinning all of this work um, is our Indigenous engagement and participation strategy. And effectively, <laughs> that's all about making sure that as we go on our research journey and we learn how we can make our cities more livable, we are working right from the beginning with Aboriginal people um, in the cities that we're working, um, but and understanding not only the traditional custodians and, and the, the, the knowledge that they have of, of the cities that we're working in before white people came, but obviously also working with contemporary um, Indigenous culture and practice. And um, it's really exciting for me. <laughs> um, and it's, I'm really looking forward to what we achieve over the next few years. And, and there are a lot of people in the audience who are helping us with that work, um, including our two very esteemed panel members um, who I would like to um, bring up to the stage because ultimately I'm going to hopefully stop talking and, and hand over to them. Um, but I want to make sure that I, I get their introductions correct because they've got very long CVs. Um, but firstly, I would like to acknowledge um, and welcome to the stage. You're welcome to wait for both descriptions or welcome to come. Um, but Timmer Ball is from our um, the steering committee for the, the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and she's also um, a member of our newly formed um, Indigenous Advisory Group and um, Timmer actually produced tonight's event um, so I'd like to thank her in advance for, for pulling together um, tonight's event but also for all the work she's already 
um, contributed to our strategy and, and for our activities we've got planned. So, but in terms of Timmer, she's many things. And again, I know that a lot of you here know her. Um, she's not only an urban planner, a writer, a community arts worker. Um, she's very involved in community engagement um, through her work at DWELP, the Department of Water, Environment, Land and Planning. Um, and she grew up in Melbourne, but her heritage on her mother's side, and I'd like to acknowledge her mother is in the audience tonight, Lorna, um, is a Baladong Noongar woman from um, Western Australia. Um, as you will hear tonight, Timra is obviously passionate about arts and, and creativity, but also um, how planners can rethink the city and, and layers and, and, and overlays and all the technical speak that planners get to use, how we can um, do that a lot better. So I look forward to hearing more about that tonight, um, Timmer. And if you um, would like to hear more or read more from Timmer um, after tonight, um, she has a lot of places where her writing um, features. Um, but it's in, uh, in particular, it's appeared in Inflection Journal right now in Etchings Indigenous, and she's also a regular contributor to Assemble Papers, um, who are, I believe there's a, a copy of their, their work. In <laughs> Page 26, there's a story from Timur in there, so I believe there's copies on, on the panel over there. So um, I'd like to acknowledge and thank uh, Timur, if you want to come to the stage. <laughs> and um, Jeep. G for Greenway, another person who I've been speaking to a lot this year, and again, I thank you for coming tonight. He's had a very big day um, presenting a large proposal, and so I um, appreciate that he's, he's made the time to come tonight. G for Greenway is an award-winning architect, um, interior designer, and director of both Greenaway Architects and Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. At least it's not the alarm that's been going on that car over there for the last two hours. Um, but, but the IADV, if you don't know, the Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria is a non-profit um, organisation that provides support and advice about architecture to Victorian Aboriginal people and encourages architects to be more engaged with Indigenous culture. Um, a descendant um, from the Wallawan and Kalamaroi people of New South Wales, um, GIFA is the first and only registered Indigenous architect in Victoria. Um, He's got many projects, small and large, um, and um, not only for commercial but residential and, and large-scale projects as well. Um, and most recently, if you haven't been there already, I encourage you to do so. Go to the new Koori Heritage Trust at Federation Square. It's beautiful, and congratulations on your work, work there. So please, um, please head to the Koori Heritage Trust. Um, and you've won numerous awards, <laughs> um, including the AIA Dulux Study Tours um, Emerging Architect Prize in 2011, um, and you're also a member of the City of Melbourne's Public Art Advisory Panel. So without further ado, Jeefer, I'd like to welcome you onto the stage as well. Smooth, smooth, smooth uh, transition from from there to here. Um, we do have a roaming mic, and tonight, um, after we've heard from Jifa and, and Timmer, um, we will open the, the floor if you've got a question for our panel or a, a comment about the discussion that we're having tonight. We will have a roaming mic here, and I may ask someone else to to hand that out in, in the audience. Um, so we'll 
we will have an opportunity to interact with the audience and I would like to thank you all for um, coming along tonight for this discussion at M Pavilion, which uh, I believe it's one of the last events of the, the, the summer calendar. Um, the the um, M Pavilion closes on Sunday, so if you haven't been here before and really love tonight's space, come back in the next few, few days, otherwise it's gone. Okay. So as I said, tonight is all about um, you know the indigenous engagement, um, indigenous engagement, and um, our work within the clean air and urban landscapes hub on cities and how do we incorporate um, Aboriginal knowledge and how do we work with Aboriginal people to design cities better, um, and so that's sort of the, the general overarching theme for tonight. Um, and I will start by asking both of you just to talk about um, you know some of the the work that you're involved in and um, what that what that concept of Aboriginal knowledge and culture and cities and making our cities better um, means to both of you big question um, I guess for me it's it's really about using the vehicle of architecture as a means of um, demonstrating that we can strengthen culture through the built environment and mm -hmm. so for me, it's very much a case of a, a holistic approach to design whereby we start to break down some of the silos between, for instance, architecture or interior design or landscape architecture and understand that we're very much connected to place. Uh, we need to uh, locate our projects with an understanding of connections to country. Um, and also, it's very important for us to um, look at it big picture. And we obviously have a responsibility as designers to ensure that we improve the lives of people. I think for me too, it's also about connecting more with people and an understanding of our history as well. I've told this story to Cathy numerous times, but I just think it's so important. When I started my urban planning masters, and it was, I guess it's quite a while now, it was 2008, 2009, I remember being in a history class and quite excited to sort of get that sense of what they would teach in terms of Australian, the history of Australian planning and architecture. And it was quite alarming that there was just absolutely no reference of Aboriginal pe people. It was literally Australia began when the British came here and they started building cities. And when I spoke to the lecturer and just wanted, I guess, more opportunity to really talk about the influence of Aboriginal people who have been here for 60,000 years and surely that must have some impact and connections. People were genuinely quite confused by that. When we think about architecture and cities, it was very much within the Western canon. And now, I guess probably, yeah, almost eight years later in 2015, Kathy gets in touch with me and there's this major research into cities and sustainability and climate change and they want Aboriginal knowledge and they're really wanting to make sure that um, when they plan and look at how we can improve cities, that we actually go back to the traditional owners. So for me, it's just so exciting and so important that we use this opportunity to acknowledge um, the history of Australia and its Indigenous people. The reality is too that Aboriginal people were the first ecologists here on this continent and the landscape was manipulated. So th there was very much a case of grooming the landscape to suit the needs of the people. And so through fire management and, and other techniques, um, the landscape was in fact uh, altered to accommodate the needs of people. But it was done in a, a very much a sustainable way 
to ensure that the, the legacy of, um, you know, future generations was considered. And, you know, I like to, to use a sort of a metaphor um, of the scar tree because the scar tree for me, for instance, represents an understanding of the need to be um, mindful of the finite resources that we have. And so, for instance, with a scar tree, essentially it's a tree that was used whereby one would take the bark and so the bark would then be used for such things as, as making a coolamon or, or a canoe. And so rather than cut down the tree to get the wood to make the canoe, one would just peel off layers, that which we needed only, and keep the tree intact so it can maintain its purpose for, for shelter, for flora, for fauna, for you know, um, using the resources into the future as well. And so that to me encapsulates very nicely an understanding that you know, there is that responsibility, there is that respect of the landscape and the environment as well. Um, we were talking before, you know, getting our notes together, but we were talking about how do we then take the knowledge from the past, mm -hmm. you know, the, if we're talking about cities of the future and we're talking about, you know, big metropolises and we're talking about technology and we're talking about fairly well modified environments um, that, that has, you know, biodiversity running through it still and frogs, Kirsten, um, but, you know, we often don't see that when we're in such a busy metropolis. But I guess the question is, you know, how do we actually take a lot of that traditional mm. knowledge and how do we get that back into our cities and into the design? And especially, I guess, commenting on um, a lot of our cities are built already. So how do we retrofit that into cities that are perhaps um, seemingly unchangeable? But we know that they're not. But, you know, how do we retrofit that, that knowledge into um, our cities? I think for me, in terms of, again, using that knowledge and bringing it back, a lot of it, I think we're going to be forced to re-examine our history and engage with what happened. And recently, an amazing Aboriginal writer and historian, Bruce Pascoe, he's just written a book called Dark Emu. And it's really looking at this idea that when we think about, you know, the environment, sustainability, climate change, and what we need to do to improve our cities, we actually forget that Aboriginal people have this amazing knowledge. And I think a lot of the problem is that history has been lost and taught incorrectly. And what he's done through this book, he's really done a lot of research, looking at a lot of sort of settler diaries and really understanding what was happening sort of almost at that frontier war um, stage in our history. And what he really found is that Aboriginal people had incredible agricultural practices. It wasn't that everyone was just a hunter-gatherer. People were actually building structures, they were growing plants, they were just doing all this amazing work that we can still build on and use now. But I think the problem is that there tends to be a lot of just misconceptions. And I guess on a broader scale too, a lot of people, people from the Aboriginal community are only beginning to re-engage with their culture and understand it. So I think in terms of how we move forward with cities, we have to sort of look at our history in a lot more detail as well. But yeah, and, and building upon that, this history exists here in Victoria. And so, you know, in the you know, Gunjinmara country, we see sophisticated aquaculture systems which were using the lava from a volcano to create a very sophisticated means of trapping eels, for instance. And so this is 
is close to us. You know, you, you drive, you know, three and a half hours west of here and you, you'll hit it. This is an area which is seeking World Heritage listing yeah. at the moment. And, you know, this is in our backyard and this is part of our history. And so those same um, materials were used for stone mm -hmm. houses. So there are clustered communities using permanent structures to build communities which was close and in proximity to great waterways which were manipulated to make for food in, in very sustainable and, and simple but yet sophisticated techniques and so this this is for me is quite amazing and I guess the extension of that within a city uh, context is starting to reveal those latent uh, and deep uh, seeded history and start to reveal the layers of history and meaning that exist here in our cities. And so it's starting to give voice to new narratives, new stories to reveal those layers that do in fact still exist to this day and start to tell some of those stories. Because storytelling is so important to Aboriginal culture and it's, but we're talking about, you know, buildings and the built environment. I really would love to hear more about as an architect and maybe it's through your work um, with the Koori Heritage Trust, I know there's some beautiful design in there. How do you incorporate stories and you know things that are intangible, perhaps and invisible? How do you incorporate that into buildings? Yeah, and, and that's that's kind of at the crux of what I do as as a practitioner, um, particularly for the project, specifically for community. And for me, principally, the starting point is a process, and so that consultation, collaboration and participation is integral to the success of such projects. And so giving a voice to the community in which one's engaging with. Because the reality is, um, as a practitioner, I don't necessarily hold the knowledge. So I'm engaging with a particular community and acting, in a sense, as a conduit to realise their aspirations. And so with, with that in mind, then what one does is sort of try and interpret those aspirations and then find techniques and uh, ways and means to represent that through the design strategies. And so what we're trying to do there is embed it in a very sophisticated yet nuanced way. So gone are the days of hanging a boomerang on the wall or painting an applique on the surface of the building or putting an Aboriginal painting in the foyer. What we're trying to do here is start to tell um, interesting and engaging stories about where we are. So for instance with the Koori Heritage Trust as a, a case in point, that's in proximity to Birung or the Yarra River. And so what we tried to do is reference that connection to that ancient uh, river system. And so embedded and infused within that design strategy are techniques to try and connect back to the river. And so while that's done uh, in a building which is quite flawed in many respects because it turns us back on the river, what we tried to do in the design strategies was to find ways in which we could connect. And so um, there is a clear sort of dialogue being represented through the built environment in referencing and connecting to the importance of place. Mm. And the connection to community and how we engage with Aboriginal people and, and communities and culture is really key to this conversation. And I know that, Timmy, you're doing a lot of work um, currently in Wyndham um, engaging with um, Aboriginal communities over a building, over a space. And so I'd be interested in yeah, exploring the complexities of engagement because as we know, it's not about just, let's just take some knowledge and we'll run with it. Mm. We've done that too much in the past. Um, and, and obviously Aboriginal people quite rightly are probably nervous about talking to a bunch of people from the University of Melbourne about, let's take your knowledge, I don't know. So how do we do it better and yeah, yeah, how absolutely. are you working on that? And I think it's sort of to extend on what Jifa was saying, what I find really fascinating 
is just how multi-layered and diverse Aboriginal people are. And in terms of kind of, I mean, even the question of what is Aboriginal design, what would an Aboriginal architecture or an Aboriginal influence building look like, it's so complex because Aboriginal people have just such a broad range of influences that can be really challenging to just get it right. And I think sometimes in terms of when we try to seek out a design or a look, it's also about building in the complexity of our history and talking about sort of what happened here, the good and the bad. And I think it's so exciting that City of Melbourne are doing that a lot. And in terms of they're making attempts to look at how we can commemorate those terrible histories like the hanging of Tanaminawait and Mulboihina and... That's really important too, that we celebrate Aboriginal culture and its complexity, but also make sure that we look at what happened in our history so that when we walk through cities and spaces, we don't just sort of think that the British came here and that Aboriginal culture just doesn't exist anymore. We kind of look at that challenges and yeah, how we can move forward. But I guess going on more directly in terms of the really complex process of how Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people can work together really successfully to create fantastic buildings and programs within this, with these buildings, is it's just incredible to just, again, look at the diversity. And what we've really found when we're working in Wyndham with the community who are sort of living in Werribee and the Wyndham Vale area, is that there's an incredible, a, a much larger number of Aboriginal people who are living in that area, but they don't necessarily have a distinct or clear um, connection. They literally come from all over Australia. And at some of the meetings, we're finding that there were generally only one or two people who were like Wadharong or Wurundjeri or had really close geographical connection to that land. But people were from sort of far north Queensland and all over the place, but they were now settling and they were kind of attracted to moving back to an area where there were other Aboriginal people. So that yeah. becomes... And that's, that's interesting too, because yeah. the reality is in a major metropolis like Melbourne, it is a diaspora of yeah. Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders from across the nation. And so it becomes a sort of a magnet for, for education or for health or for job prospects and the like. And consequently, there is that sort of need to acknowledge the breadth and diversity of Aboriginal people. And so if we... Th it's not a sort of monocultural experience either because we're looking at, um, you know, pre-colonisation, there was over 250 different language groups. And so with that diversity in mind, we need to be mindful of that in terms of our representations and how we uh, acknowledge culture yeah. in the built environment. And that's what we found when we did sort of those more early planning workshops. No one had a very specific desire or need of what they wanted there was I mean obviously I mean to give a bit of background the building's going to be quite a big community centre and it's going to have a co-location of a range of sort of health well-being and educational services but it was quite complex it wasn't this sort of sense that people would 100% have a clear idea of what they wanted. But what I found the really, really big themes were, which purely represents what Jifa was saying, is that people wanted a building and a place that was about re-strengthening culture and reconnecting to culture. And I think this language of re-strengthening and reconnection was so important because you're working with people who on many levels have lost culture. 
And we kind of, and that's really painful and challenging, but we need to sort of actually deal with that, that people are wanting to go to a, through a process of reconnection and re-strengthening. They don't necessarily have this distinct, established culture, language, artefacts, practices that they can just bring really quickly and start enacting. So a lot of it's about sort of that deep listening process. And in terms of that more design aspect, when we started talking about what could this potentially look like, a lot of people were saying things like they wanted a flexible space. And again, this idea of flexibility, I think, beautifully marriages the complexity. It's really hard to just design a building that would look Aboriginal when, as Jeeva is saying, what does that look like? And in any Aboriginal community, whether it's sort of inner Melbourne or way out in the outer Western area, the diaspora and the mix of people, and that is, doesn't even go into people who are sort of from stolen generation. There are a lot of people in that um, region who talk about only discovering maybe in their 30s or even 40s that their background's Aboriginal and it's really important for them to sort of connect back to community. But that's really hard when you're just only discovering that, you know, your mother or grandma was an Aboriginal person. So, yeah, I think we just really have to actually talk about those issues that can be sad and very challenging too. And what's particularly exciting for me is whereby now we've got to a, a level of sophistication, particularly among the, the Aboriginal practitioners who are working in this space, to start to acknowledge the uh, contemporary sensibilities around indigeneity. And so... You know, what I'm particularly interested in exploring is, is moving beyond the sort of sticks and berries approach to uh, Aboriginal identity and saying that you know, Aboriginal identity is not fixed in time. It's ever evolving and adapting and changing and growing. And so we need to reflect that in the built environment as well. And the city is very well placed to start to delve into that, um, that conversation. And so um, I'm working on a project at the moment for RMIT University and this is an external space, it's a courtyard design um, for the Indigenous unit there. And what's particularly compelling about this proposition is we're starting to look at ways where we start to connect to layers of history through time. And so one of the key sort of drivers thematically for this particular space, where it starts to merge between sort of landscape, architecture and public art, is to reference the seven seasons. And so what this starts to do is build that conversation. It starts to demonstrate a capacity for knowledge exchange. It becomes a, a sort of pedagogical tool within the university environment. We're using language as well quite strongly, whereby um, we're connecting with Wurundjeri, Bunurong, and also the, the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages, and using that in the sort of interpretation side of things. But equally, we're, we're facilitating the, the opportunity to curate um, uh, sort of conversations through that space, and also to embed um, strong sort of graphic and um, you know, contemporary expressions, whereby we're starting to, um, you know, you know, focus on design as a driver to connect and evolve um, representations and connections to culture as well. And so for me, these become really exciting propositions because mm -hmm. then we can start to flex our design muscles and, and do it in new and innovative and, and compelling ways. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that you just said then was, I think, uh, a, a quote. I, I wrote it down. No, that... Um, you know, we're talking about in our, in, when we're talking about cities, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about biodiversity, we're talking about 
um, you know, the changing, the changing air quality and the like. And, and the question is how do we incorporate, you know, Aboriginal knowledge in, into all of that research? And I guess that you, you, you said that Aboriginal culture is ever evolving and ever adapting. And isn't that what we want cities? We need cities to be if we're going to adapt um, to climate change into the future. So to already that's like the obvious starting point of the conversation. How do we learn about adaptation and, and, and um, to, the, to the changing environment and, and how we take that knowledge into change of the climate in Melbourne or in Perth or in Sydney, they're the cities that we're working in. Yeah, and the reality is, uh, Aboriginal people wouldn't have lasted on this continent for millennia if they hadn't adapted and changed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's kind of a no-brainer, um, but it's really a case, I think, and, and this is kind of at the crux of it, is to empower Aboriginal people to be part of the solution. And so, interestingly, on the way in tonight, I was listening to um, Noel Pearson uh, talking on Late Night Live, and, and what he was sort of saying there was that um, Aboriginal people often, particularly in uh, you know, remote and regional communities, often hold 95% of the knowledge, yet they only um, hold 5% of the power. And so that it's the power imbalance which often precludes the possibility of finding the solution in harmony and in collaboration with Aboriginal people. And so, for me, that is a, an integral part of the solution. <laughs> it's, um, I'm going to open it up for if there are any questions from the audience. And I can't, don't have a direct line of sight of Libby Porter in the audience, but I've... You, you talked about the power imbalance and um, you know the structures that that drive our city and, and control I guess the built environment um, in the city and the planning scheme and the planning system and how do we change that to better not only acknowledge the past but also acknowledge how we need to work together better in the future I don't know I don't want to put you on the spot but at some point Libby I'd love uh, you to come in and you know we're talking about cities and uh, my other hat is as a City of Melbourne councillor and the planning scheme drives me mad for many reasons, <laughs> um, trying to get you know, better design and better, um, um, better s spaces um, in our city and the rules are so bad often um, that we can't do that. So even yeah, how do we um, better use the planning scheme or change the planning scheme um, to, to do more of what we're talking about tonight? I'm not sure if you want to be first, but I've, Katie, did you have a um, microphone or did I see someone? Oh, yeah, Livy has it. Great. She's even been given it. <laughs> but we, we, yeah, we'll have about 15 minutes or so um, of questions and then we'll, we'll come back to the panel for discussion. But if you've got a statement or a question and maybe we'll start with Libby, but if you do, put up your hand and Katie, is it all right if you run around with that? Thank you. Sorry. Well, thanks for putting me on the spot. Sorry, Libby. <laughs> Wrapped in a blanket in midsummer in Melbourne. Um, I mean, I guess for me, part of the question is how do we um, also address, at the, at the same time as we're addressing the, the, these really important um, cultural as well as symbolic elements of how we address address the city to the question of contemporary Indigenous culture, law, sovereignty, governance, and so on. Um, is at the same time, how do we address this underlying power issue? Which seems to me to be something to do with, I think you put it beautifully, Jifa, the 95%, the or maybe Noel Pearson put it beautifully, 95%, 5% issue. Um, and, and that's partly around land ownership and the question of restitution of land, the, you know, the actual land on which we sit and, and on which the city develops uh, f largely for the profit of a very small group of people. 
And that profit never, as we know, flows more generally and it's a fundamental question to, to sustainability, I think. Um, you know, we could have a, a profoundly... Well, we don't, but we could have a profoundly sustainable city um, that was deeply unjust. <laughs> And, and this would be a very hollow form of sustainability. So how do we address this underlying question of land justice and land restitution? I, I would be interested in your views. Um, and I actually think the planning scheme and, and the planning system has a really important role to play here for the simple provisions that we already have around boring planning technical stuff mm. like betterment, like planning gain, like using that to extract a percentage of profit off all developments and sending it back to where it belongs as a crazy idea. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go on, I guess, yeah, Libby, just in terms of other conversations we've been having, I think for me the problem also comes to this idea of just the Western canon of knowledge which the which a planning system comes under. And it's a technical foreign language. Planning frameworks, planning schemes, they're very boring to read, they're dense, they don't allow for that innovation, for the flexibility. And it's like we were saying, Aboriginal people are adaptable. They're constantly, if, they, if to survive for 60,000 years, you have to change and be quick. You can't have these really restrictive zones, overlays that are just tiresome. You need that sort of energy and liveliness. And I think probably on that broader scale, it's just this idea that a more sort of Western capitalist knowledge always dominates. So whether it's Aboriginal and all the other amazing people who have come to Australia from different non-Western backgrounds, those other forms of knowledge are always marginalised. It always comes down to, yeah, just that more dominance of that kind of white Anglo culture. So... I don't know, I kind of like this idea of accepting that there's different knowledge systems and almost finding this way to sort of almost decredit or devalue planning frameworks and the Western canon and bringing up all these other amazing cultures, obviously Aboriginal, but all the other amazing ethnicities who have come to Australia and now consider this their home too. It would just be incredible that we, if we could sort of plan and think about cities and just kind of move away from a planning system. Again, that's radical and very long-term thinking, but that's what I would like. And, and for me, there's, there's two core pillars here. The, the first one is money. Without resources, one can't realise one's aspirations. And so um, we need to fund things properly to enable um, particularly Aboriginal people to um, take hold of the reins and start to direct um, where we head. But equally important to me is education, and education really is emancipation for, for Indigenous people. Um, and so, consequently, if we had more Indigenous practitioners involved in the built environment, we can start to shape the built environment and, and have a, a real say in that and start to build new and distinct and innovative conversations around how we can start to see um, our connections to place and how we can be responsive to that and how we can start to shake up some of the, the rigidity and blunt instruments that often exist within the, um, the structures that exist. And so for me, the, these become uh, core ways in which we can start to consider it. Mm. Any other questions? Hi, what's recognising planning 
uh, regime and process that exists. What is an achievable or radical idea that either of you have that you think can happen? Either pushing the boundaries of the planning process or completely outside of it? I think for me, I, I immediately think of things of almost like informal activism and just ways that people literally will construct something without getting a planning permit. And just, yeah, I mean, going back to even things like Gary Foley's tent embassy, that, that really bold form of protest where people have just erected a site and just been there. And I think, I mean, what's really interesting, I was just reading it's different contexts, but in cities like Athens, when there's just been this incredible economic shift, in terms of architecture, there's just been this movement of just sort of pop-up sort of public art interventions. So for me, that's what I'd love to see. And there is definitely this energy of public artists and sort of almost informal urban activism. And I think for me, that's a really exciting space that we could play with more. Yeah, and, and building on that, for, for me, there is um, becoming more of a conversation among the sort of cohort that exists uh, operating in this space is to start to find new and different ways. And we're starting to blend cultural um, practice into the built environment in new and different ways. And so now you're starting to see, for instance, um, enmeshing different artistic practices into what is deemed to be a, a fairly um, defined sort of silo. And so, you know, where we start to three-dimensionalise Indigenous art, for instance, um, where we start to um, consider other practitioners from other disciplines to inform how we start to do things. And so we don't start to overly sort of specialise some of these key um, areas and start to um, bring more people into the conversation. And so that's where this uh, dialogue becomes critical in terms of how we start to engage. So the engagement process is about inclusion and, and it's about, about having a real deep conversation. And it's not um, you know, enforcing a solution upon others, it's starting to have a dialogue so as we can start to do things differently. Bit of urban biodiversity here with the duck at the front. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, not sure if we've got any ornithologists here, but I'm pretty sure. Anyway, no. Um, any other questions from the audience? Oh, Peter. Peter Rayner, who is actually the director of our research hub, has arrived. He's, I believe the tram was blocked actually along Swanson Street, so he wasn't un unable to get here. But, Peter. I guess I'm not sure how much this is a question and how much it's a challenge to, to Melbourne and, and to those of us thinking about this, this area. Whether we're brave enough to have um, a space not to plan, whether whether we're brave enough to leave an experimental space within the city where some of this stuff can actually be tested, where we can see what happens when we let things take their course, and that, that, that may be as much a question to Kathy as to anyone else. It's kind of being done with the biennial labs in terms of ephemeral installations in the city and starting testing ideas and seeing ways in which um, things can be done uh, differently and in, in, in innovative ways too. But it, it's not really happening at the scale of, of, mm. of architecture. I love the idea though, again, of putting a different hat on, but the idea of just having a space and saying, do what, do with it what you'd like, <laughs> I think that would mess with people's minds. You know, <laughs> we've got so many rules and regulations and, you know, you must do this and you mustn't do that and people must live there and you can't live there. And I think it's a, it's a neat proposal, Peter. Um, and, you know, 
finding a space to, to do that and you know art is you know that's where art and creativity is so important to this conversation that I know that um, you know my I'm a scientist and I'm very literal and somewhat boring in the way that I think because I don't think outside of the box sometimes and I know that I've always benefited in thinking about solutions to these environmental challenges by working with artists and, and thinking um, about the emotional side of um, our connection to nature and, and empathy and, and I think that a space such that Peter has, has proposed I think is where you'd need artists I think to lead it <laughs> and you would need um, you know and then and we obviously know that Aboriginal culture has a lot of great um, art and uh, of, a, of a spectrum not only from music but uh, and, and painted art and everything in between I think um, yeah I think you'd need to certainly have artists lead it rather than maybe engineers or planners no offense um, and yeah, you would, but it's it's I think that somewhat answers your question Lee uh, Lee um, that um, yeah, how do we challenge the system by having a space that is not constrained by rules? It's a great um, concept to, to lead us forward, I guess, in the conversation about what we're talking about tonight and how do we um, think about that as a research group. Any other? Uh, yep. Um, thank you all for um, presenting so far. Um, I find what you've said like very compelling, um, in particular about um, what Timma said about um, embedding stories in sort of the built environment, um, particularly in remembering history and grief and resilience and this, this sort of thing. Um, from my perspective as an Asian Australian person, I just, my question has to do with considering um, the construction of Aboriginality and the evolution of this as a political identity and also as a creative identity and embedding that conversation in built environments and moving beyond sort of a black-white type framework and you yourself mentioned Tima um, about being in conversation with many different types of ways of experiencing planning beyond just Aboriginality uh, or British colonial um, ideas could you perhaps say a little bit more about maybe your experience of the types of conversations that are already going on um, in that sort of a way uh, or the types of conversations that you want to see happening in that, in that sense, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it's more about the types of conversations I'd like to see happening in the future. I think, I mean, obviously what we're seeing is this groundswell of interest and excitement to look outside of Western knowledge and Western understanding. But I think a lot of the time it still comes down to finding ways to include other perspectives, be it Aboriginal or different ideologies, where we can. But it would be really great to create those spaces where we actually kind of forget the Western system for a while and just really focus on other ways of thinking. And I think in terms of kind of sort of that more sort of built environment outcome, sometimes it feels like there are just lost opportunities that we can sort of go back to and really look at the complexity of Australia. Um, when I think of places like the Abbotsford Convent, it's one of my favourite places in Melbourne. It's just beautiful and relaxing. And yet, you know, it has all this sort of other quite unpleasant histories of being, you know, like an orphanage and a place where wayward women would be sent to and there were a lot of Aboriginal people there sent um, forcibly. And sometimes I think when you've got such a beautiful space, we should sort of talk about all the other things that also happened there too and be honest and 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're just slowly starting to have these conversations and it's sort of almost starting now. Like, as I said, you know, in my education, and that was, you know, seven years ago, it wasn't really on the cards. So, yeah, I feel like we're just more at that stage where hopefully it's going to happen more and more than, unfortunately, I can't give you a concrete example yet, but hopefully I will soon. The, um, the concrete example that came to my mind, and I just and I, I was fortunate that GIFA, I believe, is understanding, is involved in this process, but we are actually sitting in the space called the Domain Parklands, and it's actually currently being revisioned by the City of Melbourne and revisioned as envisioning this space, of which is obviously an incredibly important space for Aboriginal people, um, but it's also this huge green open space um, and so many people connect to open space on a range of, you know, on a range of levels and, and different cultures use space in a different way and, and incorporating all of that into the design is going to be important. But, you know, I'll segue back to you, G, yeah, from right. you're well, involved the, in the process. The, the original master plan made no mention of, of Aboriginal people at all. And so now that, that that sort of refresh is coming through and we're, you know, looking at it uh, with fresh eyes, there is that opportunity to start to tell some of those other stories, start to build in narratives which acknowledge the the rich diversity and, and tapestry that is uh, Australia. Um, and these become real great opportunities because green spaces like this are the lungs of a city. They're, they're critical, they're very important, they, they shouldn't be diminished. Um, yet there are still possibilities to uh, think of them differently. And so these, you know, these sort of formal garden settings are, are very structured. Um, we can let it run wild a bit. We, we can play with it. We can um, look at it in, in different uh, ways and do different things. And so these become uh, really good starting points to have new conversations ar around our cities. We've got about 10 minutes left in proceedings. I notice some of you are donning blankets and it's getting a bit cool. Um, but uh, so we, we only have a few more minutes um, of our panel. Is there any other questions before I... Just hand back to Timmer and Jifa for their final words of wisdom. Yes, in the front. Hi, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that the uh, I'm very pleased that the Kerry Heritage Centre's moved into Kerry Heritage Trust has moved into Fed Square. Um, I don't know if anyone knows how that happened, or you know, and, and I'm very very pleased and um, just. Being there in the atrium yesterday, I was just fascinated by the number of Aboriginal people that I knew who'd walk past and stop and say hello uh, with a mate of mine. And um, I just think this issue of being visible could be a, an impact, an immediate impact. Um, and I think it's having an immediate impact if I'm not imagining it. Yeah, these become uh, critical gestures um, by those in the position who can make such a call and so obviously government supports these propositions um, but building visibility and a presence of Aboriginal people is critical and so most people particularly international tourists and the like they're screaming out for ways and means to connect in with the local community and have those authentic experiences and to have that possibility of those uh, more informal exchanges uh, with Aboriginal people and so that to me um, is really exciting and we need to do more of it you know we need to make it known that Aboriginal people are here still here will continue to be here and um, 
but we may not be what you think we are. And so starting to break down some of those stereotypes of what Aboriginality is uh, in Australia in 2016. I think it's, I, I agree, I think it's exciting that it's moved to such a prominent location and it's a long history and a long battle my, is my understanding um, of, of how it got there and I think it's, um, you know, it's great that it is there for, for all of the reasons that GIFA has, has mentioned. Um, yes, yeah, so we've come to the end. I didn't send Charlie up here to wind us up, but she's, <laughs> she's suggesting it's, it's, it's closing time. But um, obviously, you know, tonight it's the start of the year. Um, it's the start of a process for the, the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and, and all of the, the, the people, the researchers, the partners in that group and in how we take the learnings, um, you know, the, the ideas that have come from people like Jifa and Timmer, but also everyone involved um, in um, in the the locations that we're, that we're working in, um, we're very excited. Again, the panel was talking about before that it's not just um, the call research hub doing this. There's a lot of a lot of activity at the moment in Melbourne and in other cities um, of groups um, looking at how we can better engage meaningfully, actively increase participation of Aboriginal communities um, tra using traditional knowledge in, in the locations we're at. So it's it's a conversation that's starting for, for us uh, in the research hub, but it's obviously a, a conversation that's also, um, I know that there's a, a um, there's a lot of work being done at the University of Melbourne, RMIT. Um, there's a lot of work at the City of Melbourne. The Institute of Landscape Architects, I know, is working in this space. And so if you are interested in, in getting involved in, in, in other activities and projects that we're working on, please see me afterwards or, or contact us through through our website, um, nesturban.edu.au. Um, but, yeah, so I encourage you to, to um, get involved in what we're, what we're um, undertaking. But um, I'd like to, you know, close tonight or, or allow Jifa and, and Timur, our amazing panellists, who I know I've learned a lot from in the last 12 months. I've got to know you um, and I know I've got a lot more to learn. But um, I'd like to thank you um, for being on the panel and, and offer you the opportunity to, I guess, your, your closing words on what this means to you um, to be involved in what we're talking about tonight. I guess for me, I just, um, we've talked about such huge, big issues and ideas and it's just sort of made me think about the small things and I'm reminded of a fantastic talk I went to last year. I think it was at the Wheeler Centre with the Melbourne Widers Festival and Tony Birch and Gary Foley were talking about climate change and these issues and Tony Birch said something that just stayed with me. It was so amazing. He was talking about how you know, he doesn't really know what he's doing, like, and if, he, and if he should even have a right to be talking in this space. And he said, but, you know, I think about my grandma and all the sacrifices she made and the trouble they went to to make sure we were fed and those connections to family. And I go, does this have anything to do with climate change or these big issues? And he said, no, I think it does. It's about survival and family. And so I think, yeah, these are huge discussions and it can be really intimidating but to just remember that those small things we can all do and just connection to family and caring for each other is really important. Yeah, for, for me, the essence of this is, is about uh, social sustainability. It's about health and well-being in, in the places in which we live. Uh, and it reminds me of uh, some very sage words that a, a Ewan elder uh, said at a, a masterclass I attended, uh, Uncle Max Dallamunnam and Harrison, and he said, You've got to give it away to keep it. 
And what you're saying there is the, the importance of that knowledge exchange, of that passing knowledge down, speaking to people, um, but it needs to be on our terms. And so that, that's the, the critical sort of rider to, to that quote. But I, I think for me that, that very much sort of resonates as, as, a, as a way of sort of thinking. Thank you. Um, please thank our um, excellent panellists, um, Timmer Ball and Jeeva Greenway, for, um, yeah, for tonight's conversation. Thank you. Happy. A lot of food for thought. Thank you again to M Pavilion for hosting us. And um, I believe the bar is open for another 20 or so minutes. And so. Um, and just a bit of a plug. Yes. If you're interested in this space, yeah. um, the not-for-profit organisation of which I'm the chair, Great. IADV, yeah. um, if you just sort of Google iadv.org.au, you'll, you'll find a lot of um, great resources. Yeah. Thank On you. the M Pavilion site links us straight to your website, I believe. So, um, yes, please do look at that site. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, feel free to thank join you. and, and join in the conversation. <laughs>